Once upon a time, long, long ago, in a time beyond reckoning, the Buddha whose teachings we practice lived in a previous life as a king, and his name at that time was King Subrabasa. The king told his elephant trainer that he wanted to ride his great white elephant at that time. But the elephant trainer told the king that it was not possible because the elephant had broken its golden chains and had ran back to the forest. It had bolted out to the jungles. The king had an uncontrollable burst of anger which frightened everyone. And the elephant trainer quietly told the king that the elephant is well trained. He will return. Just as the trainer predicted, the elephant did return. And the king reflected on his uncontrollable anger, his inability to place his energy in a different direction, and he also reflected on the well-trained elephant. The king said, Though I am king and have great power over others, I have failed to conquer what is closest, and that is myself. I cannot even control my anger. So he asked his elephant trainer, Tell me, trainer, are there any who have truly conquered themselves? That question led King Suprabhasa on a great quest through many, many lifetimes. So lifetimes passed, ages passed. It is said that four immensities and one hundred thousand world cycles passed, as the story goes. And Suprabhasa took rebirth as a Brahmin in a wealthy family, and his name was Sumedha at that time. Sumedha had this great spiritual urgency. He felt this great inner calling to know the truth for himself. And he gave up tremendous wealth of this great, deep inner urge to experience unconditional peace and happiness. So he became a recluse in a forest nearby. And during that time, he had heard that the Buddha of that time was coming into the area. And this was the Dipankara Buddha. That this Dipankara Buddha was arriving. The recluse Sumedha had the job of that time of repairing the road, the pathway, a certain portion of the road that the Dipankara Buddha would walk across in order to arrive at the town. The road was muddy and rocky from the recent rains, so it was quite a job for Sumedha to repair this uh, portion of the road. As the Dipankara Buddha drew nearer, the recluse Sumedha saw him from afar and was deeply touched and inspired by the nobility of this person, this Buddha that was coming closer. He had heard stories of his wisdom and compassion and saw for himself the shining beauty of this human being. 
Because his job was not yet finished, as the Deepankara Buddha drew near, this uh, recluse lay himself down over the path on the mud so that the Deepankara Buddha's footing would be in safety. And it was during that time that the recluse Sumedha made a great resolve because of his deep inspiration at seeing the Buddha of that time to bring to perfection all the beautiful human qualities of mind and heart that the Buddha so shiningly exampled, so shiningly embodied. So it was during that time that Deepankara Buddha made the prophecy that this man, Sumedha, would become a Buddha in a future world cycle. And so this is the world cycle that we uh, receive the teachings of this Buddha in today, Gautama Buddha. These virtues or perfections or beautiful qualities of mind and heart are called paramis. You'll hear us say that word once in a while, paramis. They are like forces of light or wholesomeness in the mind and heart that carry us to our destiny, whatever our destiny may be, for just experience seeing happiness and peace. That already is a great destiny, experiencing unconditioned happiness and peace. These forces of light, the paramis, are ten. They are generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolution, loving-kindness, and equanimity. These are virtues that we can cultivate like spiritual skills. They also are like seeds of freedom, which, as we cultivate them, bear fruit, and that fruit carries more seeds of freedom. So they are like causes that have results, and those results also carry more causes. They proliferate. They perpetuate. They purify our actions in the world and create a very stable foundation for the experience of unconditioned peace and happiness to arise. It is said that wisdom, or this unconditioned peace or happiness, can arise easily from a virtuous heart. So like ten streams converging to create a strong current that carries us easily on our path, these are how the paramis work. I love this story of Sumedha because it represents to me the timelessness of this purification process the idea that it's nothing that we can hurry along, that if it took four immensities and a hundred thousand world cycles for the Buddha, well, then I can not be so impatient. (laughs) The going can get rough, of course, as we cultivate these paramis, and there can be frustration and self-pity, 
feelings of inadequacy along the way. There's an old Chippewa song that goes, Sometimes I go about pitying myself, when all the while I am carried across the vast sky by this great wind. And so this great wind, or these, this great current, is like these paramis. When we cultivate them or strengthen them, they are part of the weaving of the causes and conditions for our liberation, carrying us across the vastness of samsara. It is said that the Buddha was endowed with three great accomplishments. They were the accomplishment of cause, which is said to be the effort that the Buddha put forth during his many existences to cultivate these qualities, these forces of purity in his mind and heart, the paramis. These paramis are the causes and conditions that led to his great understanding, compassion, wisdom, the experience of the unconditioned. They were the foundation for his purification and liberation. The result of this is called the accomplishment of result. The result of these paramis leading to his great purification, liberation, and omniscient knowledge. His third great accomplishment was said to be that of service, or the accomplishment of seeing to the welfare of all beings. Of course, with all these qualities, it's easy to be benevolent and share. Uh, that purity, that clarity, and wisdom. He shared his understanding and compassion during his time for 45 years until his death. And that compassion, that wisdom, we experience today. I wanted to put focus on these qualities of mind and heart as a way of reestablishing trust and confidence in ourselves as a way of, re, um, of putting a light on those wholesome qualities of our mind and heart, which we very, not very often connect to, or somehow when we do connect there, we feel that something's wrong. So to reconnect with those parts of ourselves that we may have forgotten or that are deeply buried, to remember, to reconnect, and to remember, to make whole again those parts of ourselves that we split off from or feel fractured about, to make whole, to put together again, to remember, to recognize, recognize, to know again. This remembering, recognizing this terrain well can give us a sense of trust and safety in ourselves, a trust of confidence that we can 
step with courage on our path. Oftentimes we don't have this confidence in ourselves because all of these uh, difficult states of mind and heart keep appearing and they're loud and, and grisly and harsh and um, uh, they call a lot of attention. And so our attention is drawn there over and over again. If we can remember or recall times when we were children and we had this sense of innocence and the sense of purity about ourselves, this kind of trust, openness, and connection with life. This is what cultivating the paramis brings us back to, this sense of connection, openness, trusting life more, because we can trust ourselves, because we can have confidence in our ability to walk the path without bringing danger to ourselves or others, bringing grief to ourselves or our others, because we can trust our own actions, our own heart. It's a matter of coming to trust our hearts more in practicing these paramis, in cultivating them. When we were children, we had this sense of purity, of innocence, of pristineness, But then, of course, as we open to the harshness of the world, it disappeared. We became aware of this harshness. We closed down. Barriers went up. These barriers went up as a protection for ourselves. A lot of that childlike pristineness, those wholesome strengths, got covered up with those barriers. With that harshness, we began to face the struggle, the darkness, the anger, the pride, the fierce grasping, the disappointment, the jealousy, the fault-finding, the condemning, and so forth and so on. These became predominant simply because they're really loud They take a lot of space. They feel solid. And those very subtle states, we don't recognize or they don't call our attention so much. All of this harshness, the struggle, the darkness, the difficulties, became a very closely knit system of intellectual, emotional, bodily and mental habits that we no longer question as to their usefulness in the world. When we practice, and in the stillness here, we begin to see the, the, uh, the porousness of all of life. We begin to see through it with the quietness and stillness of mind and body sometimes we actually even begin to experience ourselves as very porous, almost like there were places in ourselves that we can't feel, almost, parts of the body that almost disappear in our sitting. 
parts of the mind and heart which become so quiet they're almost imperceptible to perceive those places, those quiet places in our mind and heart requires a lot of stillness, continuity. It's almost as if this dissolving, disentangling takes place. What we begin to experience is this utter simplicity of life that brings us in this utter simplicity moments of experiencing just the breath, just a step, just hearing no matter what is being heard, just tasting, just seeing, just contentment, simply being content, so subtle, so porous, almost imperceptible sometimes that we can't believe it, an okayness, a moment of metta, a moment of compassion. Our hearts and minds and bodies become like that very pristine place we experienced when we were children unweighted down, unencumbered, unclouded. Moments when we begin to see through life very clearly. And it brings us great happiness, great joy. Sometimes we come in and uh, sometimes I hear from others or I have reported myself when just one moment of taking a step and really being with that step with pristine awareness was so happiness producing. The simplicity of it, the unencumberedness of it, the clarity of it. And that one moment gave me nourishment for a whole day or two days or three days. All of this we can experience. All of this is possible for us, each one of us. So we begin to experience, as we open to the practice, moments of times like this that nourish us through many more sittings and walkings and maybe many days. When we have this childlike experience of the world again, to see, to be able to see each moment like we did when we were children. Last year when I was here uh, and for the first time experienced the autumn, the changing of the leaves here, and also for the very first time saw a snowfall, saw a snowflake for the very first time. I was sitting in a uh, house that we were in down the road, had a big window on the second floor and looked out uh, in a, in, onto a clearing. It was really a beautiful place. I enjoyed my time there so much. And I was just sitting on the sofa and looking out and enjoying just seeing 
and using that time when I didn't have a lot to do to just see sometimes, to just see a leaf falling or um, see the change of light, but really to just see. And so I was sitting there not expecting anything at all, not expecting to see a particular thing or to see it in any particular way. And there were leaves falling and floating, and I also began to notice more things floating. And all of a sudden, I realized that they were snowflakes. I realized that they were, uh, the shape was different, the form was different, they kind of had a different way of floating down. And when I realized that it was a snowflake, and I really stayed with it, I stayed with the seeing, with the happiness, with the tranquility that surrounded it. It just gave me so much joy that that moment has nourished me to this very time, just remembering that time of just seeing. I remember that time often. I remember it to remind me of that capacity I have to see the world with childlike eyes, to see the world with that beginner's mind. But we have more wisdom now because we've traversed through the darkness also. So it's beautiful to be on the path when there's this capacity to see with childlike eyes, childlike ears, childlike mind, to be able to experience in this way and to also have experienced the darkness and know what that terrain looks like, know how to traverse that terrain also. Wu Men, who was a Chinese haikuist, centuries ago said this, 10,000 flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in the summer, snow in the winter. If your mind isn't clouded by many things, this is the best season of your life. And we see that this is true for us as we come here and practice, that the simplicity of it all is so beautiful when we can tune into that, this unclouded mind and heart and ears and eyes. Manindra, my first Dhamma teacher, used to constantly uh, remind me that this is a practice of deconditioning deconditioning the mind and heart of the unwholesome habitual tendencies and reconditioning, redirecting it towards wholesome qualities of mind and heart. Because this is the direction that brings us to unconditional peace and happiness. It's as simple as that. It directs our path to the unconditioned When I first met Manindra, 
I was a woman in my 20s, early 20s, and I was a single parent of three children. And at that time, I was lamenting to him of the difficulties of my life and the difficulties that brought me to that place of being a single parent in my life. And, uh, you know, as we usually do with, with our friends and with ourselves, we go over and over and over and over and over again all these difficulties that we have. And I remember once we were driving, I was driving him someplace in a car where we live on Maui down, it was down Haleakala Highway, and I was bringing him to a park for an afternoon. And I was telling him again, probably for the hundredth time, of these difficulties and what brought me to this place of difficulty and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And I'd never heard Manindra before or since respond with so much fierceness in his voice. He said, stop! (laughs) And I was literally shocked. And uh, he was really tired of hearing me going over and over it again. (laughs) And I can just hear his voice. He said, the past is dead and gone. The future is not yet born, but you live your life in the past. And every moment that you relive your life in that past, to paraphrase him, that I make as difficult a future, because it's in this present moment that I am birthing the future. Not only did he stop me, but he constantly pointed towards the goodness that was in me. He constantly pointed towards the wholesome qualities of mind and heart that I could not see in myself. He was like the grandfather that, you know, our culture has lost touch with. The grandmother or grandfather that could point these things out to us. When people came to our house where he stayed uh, once in a while, and people would come and, and tell him of their difficulties and their complaints, he would listen patiently, but he would also ask them, can you see any goodness about yourself? And it would be difficult for people to get that together. But he would constantly ask that question, do you see any goodness about yourself? Tell me about that goodness. Simple as that. The Buddha said, cultivate the good. If I did not think you could do it, I would not ask you to. Cultivate the good. It's important to cultivate the good, not just because it makes our life easier and it makes us trust ourselves more, and it makes life for others better. We can be better human beings, but it's also because it leads us in the direction of our path towards wisdom, towards the, uh, towards unconditioned peace and happiness. And this is wise. So it's been a long journey since that time 
almost 25 years ago for myself. And I've learned that uh, there has been as much of my journey that I have had to take time for to cultivate the good, to see the goodness in myself and others, to really pay attention to those subtle, still states of contentment, of delight, of joy, of my capacity to experience that, as it was for me to experience, to open to, to explore the darkness of the mind and heart. I found that that balance was really important on the path, the balance of seeing the goodness in ourselves, of really accepting our capacity to experience stillness, quietness of the mind and heart, contentedness. Here we do this in the practice of metta meditation, which is really important to cultivate these strengths because when we practice metta, many of these strands of these beautiful qualities of mind and heart are touched upon or it leads us to that. Later we'll begin to practice the other Brahma Viharas or the other uh, divine abodes of the mind and heart like uh, compassion and equanimity, sympathetic joy. But how can we practice so that we can cultivate and strengthen these qualities as we do our vipassana practice here. One way is to simply notice them when they're there. We have a tendency to dismiss them or to go through them really quickly because they're so subtle. They're not as tangible and grisly and solid as... um, the difficult states of mind, like anger or impatience, or all the different strands of it. These very subtle qualities of mind give us a very enduring, soft, pliable strength. Just because they're subtle doesn't mean that they don't have any strength or they don't have any power. Loving-kindness, care, contentedness, delight, generosity, all of these have great power in the mind and heart. Notice them however they come, even though they come and go very quickly. See if we can explore them in the way that we explore anger noticing their impermanence. Even though they come and go very quickly, see if we can explore them in the way that we explore anger, noticing their impermanence, their impermanent nature, also their empty nature, their impersonal nature. Really be mindful of these states. Nyanaponika Thera, who was a great Buddhist scholar and teacher, wrote a book on mindfulness which I read recently. 
And he says in that book that to what a person brings attention, to that his or her mind inclines. So how much attention do we give these states that arise and pass away ever so quickly and subtly? Can we really open to them? Sometimes it's harder to open to these subtle states to really accept them, sometimes even more than it is to the difficult states of mind. So we've given a lot of attention in our practice and in our society to our neuroses. And I've seen this over and over again in myself and in others, so I just wanted to put a big plug in, put a big light on the paramis, you know, as a balance to the attention we give our neuroses. So as much as we can, for the, res- for the sake of restoring our faith in ourselves, for the sake of restoring our, our confidence in ourselves, remembering, really recognizing these places, even if they come and go very quickly, to say, to note them, compassion, How many times do we notice compassion? Do we note compassion when it arises? Compare that to how many times we may note anger or we don't have a tendency to note them, uh, those subtle states, compassion, contentedness, delight in the mind, patience. It's as if um, we don't accept them So really note them and take notice of how they affect the mind and the body. It's really delighted me that the practice of metta has grown so much and it has become so popular and people in their practice are seeing the benefits, seeing the, the fruit of the practice in their daily life also. And uh, recently, in fact, just before beginning to teach here, I taught a course of loving-kindness at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, the, the stress reduction course that's offered by John Kabat-Zinn and his associates. It, and it really um, gave me a sense of fulfillment to see how a simple practice of metta is taking root, that people are finding its importance again, the simplicity of that, to where um, other teachers are coming to the course and uh, professionals are there and people that can bring it to their own life and to the lives of others. Recognizing 
these subtleties in the mind and in the heart may not be so easy. We're not so used to recognizing them. Last year also when we were here, uh, Steve and I went on many walks and in those walks around the Quabbin or in the forest near our house, Steve would point out many times when there were deer tracks on the path that I never noticed before because where I grew up there weren't any deer and it was just not something that I noticed, not something uh, that stood out to me because it was so subtle because I wasn't used to it. And as he pointed them out more and more, I began to take notice of those subtlety, subtle deer tracks more and more. And also, as we begin to take notice of these beautiful states, beautiful qualities of mind and heart that arise in each one of us, more than probably we take notice of. As we continue to do that, they'll become more familiar to us and that path in our mind and hearts will be easy to find. It's not easy to find when we haven't tread that path so much or we haven't uh, taken notice so much. A few years ago, I volunteered to help with an autistic boy in the community where I live, and his name is Daniel. As some of you may know, autistic persons have a very limited pattern of behavior. And our job, our, uh, our task, our challenge, was to widen this uh, young boy's choices of behavior, his patterns of mind and body. And oftentimes Daniel would just take his saliva and make patterns, the same pattern on the window, over and over and over again. Or he would swing on a swing that was there over and over and over again, like maybe for 45 minutes, and he wouldn't know how to make another choice. Our job was to get him to pay attention to something else and to have him uh, encourage him to take notice of it by either being loud or jumping up and down or putting it right in his face. And when he took notice of it, we encouraged him further and we jumped up and down literally for joy and said, yes, 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 Daniel, just to make another pathway in his mind and in his body and heart. And it's almost as though this is what we have to do with these beautiful qualities of mind and heart. That when we're there and we note them and notice them, to take delight in them almost. You know, not to hang on, of course, not to hold on, but to really take delight in that they are present. What hinders us from doing this? Sometimes what hinders us is our inability to accept them because they're so unfamiliar 
our inability to believe that it's even possible for us to experience a day of simply feeling content. We say, this isn't possible, or this is going to leave pretty soon. I can't believe this. It's too good to be true. You know, how can a whole day go by and I not be uh, feeling blundered by so many thoughts or by the heaviness of anger or grasping? It becomes almost unbelievable to us. A friend of mine used to tell me, don't say it's too good to be true. Say it's good enough to be true. (laughs) So it's this unaccepting attitude we have sometimes, or we can't believe that it's true. Comparing, comparing this time to other times, which brings us out of the present moment of just experiencing how it is. Wanting it to stay. Fearing that it will go. These are all things to be vigilant about when we're experiencing these subtleties of mind and heart. Wanting it to stay, fearing that it will go, comparing it to other times. Our attention is brought to these hindrances because they're louder. They seem more solid. But be vigilant for them when they come. The old voices will come in. Of course, you're not good enough to have this happiness and peace. Know them as just old voices, as just an old howling wind, maybe. We don't have to believe them, what they say. We can simply just notice them as thinking. So it's becoming more familiar of mind and heart and being vigilant for those loud voices that pull us away. Allowing momentary experiences to be there. Buoyancy, openness, equanimity, generosity. Restoring our faith and trust in ourselves. So important as we walk this path to have this balance of knowing this goodness this lightness of mind that we have the capacity to experience and that we do experience. I'd like to end with a beautiful writing by David White who writes about faith and our ability to open even just a little when we experience our goodness, our faith. I want to write about faith, about the way the moon rises over cold snow, night after night, faithful even as it fades from fullness, slowly becoming that last curving and impossible slither of light before the final darkness. But I have no faith in myself. I refuse it the smallest entry. Let this then, my small poem, like a new moon, slender and barely open, be the first prayer 
that opens me to faith. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.